Well, good morning, church. Nice to see you all. Uh, my name is Darren, and uh, I'm one of the shepherds on staff here. And I'll just add to what I, you know, I know we handed out the, the gift deal to those of you who are guests. Let me add my greeting to you who are guests, and let me say one other thing. We're happy to give you a free cup of coffee. In fact, that feels like the least we could do, but that doesn't feel like all we want to do. So, what we'd like to do is to look you in the eye, to know who you are, to shake your hand, to hear about your life, to be, to be family with you. And so, uh, don't, don't take that free cup of coffee in the info packet as like, oh, we're satisfied with that. We would love it if you'd come and meet us at the connect wall afterwards or come and say hi after the service to us. That's the best possible outcome with guests that are here is to actually meet you personally. But we know some people are shy or the idea of introducing yourself feels daunting. So we wanted there to be some kind of something that says we see you and we care about you, but just know in our hearts, we'd rather, you know, shake your hand or whatever. So there's that. Uh, let me also say this before we get into Ecclesiastes. Okay, ready? It's from my heart. I'm really, really, really thankful for your hard work last week. So last week with, uh, and you know, like with the Easter and Good Friday and all the moving pieces, uh, the overwhelming support of volunteers, new volunteers, old volunteers, people who'd never volunteered before, people who've only been attending the church for a few weeks that jumped up and stepped in. I mean, as we reflected on our Easter celebration as a staff, again and again, it came up just how fun it was to serve alongside all of you. So for those of you who kind of stepped out of your comfort zone, whether that's a thing you've been doing for a long time or maybe you volunteer for the first time. I just don't want last weekend to come and go and you not hear me say like, we see you and we are grateful that you helped make all that happen. And the kingdom work that happened last week, the gospel ministry that went down, that happened because of our shared effort, right? Us working together. I feel very privileged and fortunate, blessed by God to, to be able to serve in a church like this with people who step up and serve. So thanks for volunteering, whatever you did, whether that was handing out donuts or working the parking garage or greeting people or wiping tables or there were a ton of different jobs. doesn't matter what you did. We were in together and I'm thankful for your participation. Know there are going to be other things coming up in the future. So if if you didn't get to volunteer and you want to do that, I I would love to see you jumping in on that down the road as well. Okay, so now we turn our eyes to Ecclesiastes. I'll remind you, if you're a guest or maybe you just didn't hear, one of the great tools we found in this church over the last several years is the ability to use like a scripture journal. Sorry about the whistle. I don't know what that was. Uh, We use a journal and uh, we have those available in the back. All that is, is the book of Ecclesiastes. And then on every facing page, there's a blank spot where you can write down questions or observations or things you feel the spirit of God saying to you. It's just a great way to keep track of our study in an ongoing way. Uh, Crossway, the publisher of those journals gives us a great deal. We're selling to you for $3 in the back, but let me say this. um, We make no profit on that. So that's exactly what we pay. Let me say this. If you don't have three bucks, I don't care. Just take it, right? We don't want anybody to be without one of those. If you're going to be part of this ongoing study, grab one of those. And if you don't have the $3, it doesn't matter. Maybe you find yourself in the position of having like a $10 bill and you don't actually mind contributing the whole 10. What we'll do is we'll take the extra that you throw in and we'll add that journals to the pile for people who don't have three bucks. So if you're here today and you're going to be in this study with us over the next two months, grab one of those journals. We want you to have it. If you can pay for it, awesome. If you can't, who cares? Get one. It's going to be really valuable as we, as we plug into this together. Okay, that said, let's turn our attention to Ecclesiastes. So as we begin our series, there's always value, I think, in doing a couple of overarching, uh, overarching themes, overarching ideas, and some things to know before we actually dive into the text. 
one of the things that it's important for you to know is much like our study in 1 Corinthians or several other books, uh, this is a book, once again, that's steeped in controversy. So if you actually take the time to do the study, what you will find is that there are hundreds of different opinions about different parts of Ecclesiastes. There's difference of opinion over authorship. Some people say Solomon wrote it. Some people say he couldn't have written it because of the time period. Some people say it was another king. Some people say that uh, the Solomon-like character was actually created by a narrator who, uh, who we hear at the beginning and the end. Uh, there are all kinds of dis- like differences of opinion from people who love Jesus and have a high view of Scripture. They sometimes differ in opinion on how to interpret certain words. They differ in opinion on how to resolve or, or to leave unresolved potential conflicts in the text. I mean, there is a wide view of opinion on a book like this. And that's not a reason for us to avoid it, but it is worth saying, like, if you were looking to do some extra study, I think you'll find it enriching and valuable to dive in because there are lots of differing opinions on a book like this, and it's worth taking a little bit longer look than I might have time, say, in the 35 minutes of a message on Sunday. The book itself is a book in the Old Testament uh, of what we would call, it's a book of wisdom. It's one of what I would consider three wisdom books. That classification doesn't really matter. But wisdom books are written in order to both show us in sort of poetic language, both the simplicity and the complexity of life, right? The, the good things and the bad, uh, I would also consider Proverbs and the book of Job to be books of wisdom in the Old Testament. And you kind of can't read one without the other. So in some ways, you read a book like Proverbs, and Proverbs tends to say things like, if you live a certain way, everything will go good for you, right? So you read Proverbs, and it gives you all these little nuggets of wisdom and poetic language that deal with the simplicities and the complexities of life. It says, if you live X, Y will happen. You live good, and good things will happen. Ecclesiastes is a great foil to Proverbs in some ways because what the writer of Ecclesiastes comes along and says is, if you live the right way, it doesn't always go good for you, right? You could live the right way and it might go good for your enemy. You could live the right way and you might die tomorrow. You could live the right way and your life may have no value in the long remembered histories of the future, right? So, so what it's interesting is that there is this sort of compliment and this back and forth. I would say also, if you're looking for a little homework and I know you're not, uh, it can be helpful to read Job and Proverbs while we're studying Ecclesiastes. So you get the ways that these books work together. Remember that anytime we're studying a specific book of the Bible, we don't want to pull that book out of context, right? We don't want to pull it out of the context of the larger text of Scripture. We always want to let the larger text of Scripture inform our understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes. So we have to understand uh, when it was written, who it was written to, what was happening at the time. So let me give you a couple of those clues as we look at Ecclesiastes. It's important for you to remember through the whole of this study that some of the questions that the author is posing here and sometimes answering in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Jesus had not answered yet. Does that make sense? So this book was written uh, in an Old Testament period, I would argue, and I could be wrong, I would argue that this was written in a, in a period of time after the exile. So I think what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes is that there is a sort of disillusionment with the community promises that God had made to his people, right? God had made these promises to Israel that he would be with them and that he would protect them and that their enemies would be his enemies and their friends would be his friends. And after the exile, I think individuals in, in uh, Israel were thinking about those promises and going, I don't really know if that's true. I'm not sure that God is going to do all these things he says he's going to do. And so there's this shift in the mindset of the people during this post-exilic time 
where they start to think individually, less communally, more individually about the value of their own lives, the value of their toil, the value of their investments in the world, the value of all the things that they've prioritized, right? It's important for us to understand that time period because we also live in a time period today where people are far less concerned with communal promises than they are with their own sort of individual advancement, the value of my own life, how much power I have, how much money I have, how many pleasurable experiences I've had or whatever. We tend to be a highly individualistic society and in that, I do think we have something of a taste of what it felt like to be a Hebrew person after the exile. When the promises of God to his people are feeling less tangible and a little more uh, like futility in some ways than they had been in previous generations. We come to this text and we recognize that Jesus will answer some of the questions in Ecclesiastes. But at the time this book was inspired and at the time in which it was written, he had not yet answered those questions. So it's also valuable for us as we study it to remember that the earliest audiences who read and and sort of digested the, the language in Ecclesiastes would have done so without the answers we find in Jesus. And the reason why that's important for me to throw out to you here as we study is that you may have, um, you may have a tendency or an urge in our study to just kind of disregard Ecclesiastes entirely. To go, eh, that feels like a downer. It feels pessimistic. It feels critical. It feels kind of like, you know, it sort of sucks the air out of the room. Instead, I just want to, you know, sort of give the Sunday school answer and go, everything's better because Jesus rose from the dead, Right. We sort of want to move on from the pain and the grief that is expressed in Ecclesiastes and almost ignore it because we can go, well, yeah, but, but Jesus, right? That, that same thing that gets you a piece of candy in third grade is an easy way to discount what's here. But what I want you to remember with me as we study it is that this book was given to God's people, including us, in a time period where the answers had not all been revealed yet. That means that it is valuable even without the long-term answers of Jesus. Does that make sense? It is valuable for us to contemplate and to understand and to work through, not that we ignore the answers that Jesus provides, but rather that we sit in some of the pain and the grief that is conveyed here because it is universal to all human understanding, right? There is much in this book that you're going to resonate with. And there may be a tendency on your part when you start to hear him ask questions about the value of all the toil, or when you start to hear him ask questions about whether or not we'll be remembered in future generations, or when you hear him sort of articulate some of his concerns about God and the world, you may start to feel this tendency to want to uh, distance yourself from those perspectives, right? It's funny how often as a pastor, I end up in conversations with people who have questions about whether God is good or not. I end up in conversations with people who are wondering if God actually keeps his promises, who are wondering if God is actually paying attention. Is he actually present? And not only are they asking those questions, but they feel this enormous amount of shame and guilt for even asking the question, right? They feel like bad people for even wondering if there is futility in this life. I want you to understand, if that's you, I want you to understand that one of the authors of scripture felt what you're feeling. That one of the authors of scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit had had a period of time in his life where he looked at everything and went, I'm not sure this is as valuable as I was told, right? I want you to feel the solidarity in human 
brokenness and in human suffering. And I don't want you to feel shame in your questions or your doubt. I don't want you to feel guilt or regret in asking the questions. Because the writer of Ecclesiastes asks the questions and he is not reprimanded for the questions. Does that make sense? There is no penalty for him wondering these things aloud. And there is no penalty for us in 2023 wondering aloud the questions that we have and then allowing God to answer those questions or to walk with us as we wrestle with them. Does that make sense? So remember as we go uh, that Jesus hasn't answered all of these questions yet at the time in which it was written. It was written in a post-exilic period in which their confidence in communal promises was decreasing. Also understand that Ecclesiastes is going to be painfully honest about its frustrations, his frustrations, his struggles, and he's, he's going to be uh, dismissive of easy answers. Again, what I said about Proverbs, where Proverbs goes, hey, if you live a certain way, everything's going to be good. The writer of Ecclesiastes goes, no, it's not necessarily, right? That's not necessarily true. And he doesn't apologize for for laying out that counterpoint. Having said all of that, I want to walk you through uh, the first 11 verses here this morning. Understand as we dig into Ecclesiastes that it's framed in a really interesting way. So the way in which the book is framed is that the first 11 verses of chapter 1 are done in a different voice than verses 12 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12, verse 7. Does that make sense? So we got two different voices. We have a narrator voice, or what some would call the author voice, which is, uh, is 1, 1 through 11, and then 12, 8 through 14. And then in the middle, you have the voice of what the book calls the preacher in the ESV translation. The original Hebrew word is kohelet. That's Q-O-H-E-L-E-T. And there isn't a great, uh, there isn't a great interpretation uh, for that particular word. It's a hard word to uh, translate. It's not a great translation. The ESV translates it, the preacher. The word Kohelet, uh, by the way, is not a proper name. So there wasn't anybody named Kohelet. That's not like a thing people named their kids in ancient Israel. Kohelet is a title. And the title basically means one who gathers an assembly. One who gathers a group of people. Kohelet. So it gets interpreted, depending on who's doing the translation, sometimes, as we see in the ESV or King James or whatever, it gets translated, the preacher. And their association is with someone who does a job like mine, where he's getting up in front of an assembly of people. My problem with the translation preacher is that also in 2023, you probably have a bias, right? You either like preachers or you don't like them. You've known some good preachers or some bad preachers, or maybe you associate a preacher with being like the boss at a church. And that isn't necessarily implied in the word kohelet, right? Some have translated the word teacher. Some have translated it. I think Bible project translates it the critic, because most of what we see in Chapter 1, verse 12 through 12, verse 7 is a criticism of the, of the, um, the value systems of the world. So, so Bible Project calls him a critic. I think Eugene Peterson in the message we were looking at earlier calls him the quester. He translates the word kohelet to quester, which in my opinion doesn't quite capture the idea of someone who gathers an assembly. Don't worry about how we translate that word. Just understand that the book itself is written in two voices. You have a third person voice in the first 11 verses, and you have a third person voice in the last few verses as well. But it's my contention, and we don't have to argue about this. My contention is that you're dealing with one author who creates a Solomon-like character in the first section. Let's look at verse 1 together. It says, The words of the preacher, that's Kohelet, the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Again, there are some who think this is talking about Solomon. I would say the time period doesn't exactly line up for that. And there are books in the Bible that were written by Solomon. And when he writes a book, he usually says, hey, it's me, Solomon, writing this book. And he doesn't do that here, right? 
So I have questions about that. But what I do think we're seeing is an anonymous author using a Solomon-like character, right? Using someone like Solomon who is wise and powerful and wealthy and influential, who has all of these things. So he starts the book by saying, the words of the preacher, the words of Kohelet, who is the king in the line of David, right? And what he's establishing is this is an ultimate wise teacher. This is a guy that's like a super Solomon, if you will. And the reason why he establishes this character this way is that he doesn't want us to be able to wiggle out from underneath the fact that this person had everything and had done everything and could buy anything and could go anywhere and had all this power and still found emptiness in the world. He doesn't want us as the reader to be able to go, well, this guy wasn't that rich. If he was a little bit richer, he might have found meaning. Oh, he wasn't that powerful. He was a little more powerful. He might have found meaning in the world. Oh, if he was, you know, whatever. He makes this character, Kohelet, whose voice we hear in the middle of the book, he makes this character the ultimate in every category so that what we're learning as we go is that it doesn't matter how much money or how much power or how much influence or how many places you go or how many things you do, you come to these conclusions. That's why he makes this person this sort of ultimate character in the story. Then he will go on here to summarize the message of the whole book. So in verses 2 through 11, we get a summary of all of Kohelet's sentiments. And it starts with verse 2, which is kind of a motto for the whole book. He says in verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This translation is hard for us to get the gravity of it. The word in Hebrew that's translated vanity here is the word hevel. And hevel can be translated vanity, depending on the translation you've got. Here's another one of those translation issues. Some people translate this word meaningless, and some people translate it futility. You might have seen that translation, futility of futilities, right? That superlative, that doubling up of the word hevel is to show that it's ultimate in every regard. But he says hevel of hevels, right? Hevel of hevels, all is hevel. And the word hevel, originally, the, 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 like the basic interpretation is of breath, or wind, or smoke, something intangible, something you can see but you can't quite grasp, something that is temporary in nature and sort of disappears. James uses a similar idea in James chapter 4, 13, when he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's likely that James, when he was writing that verse, was thinking about Ecclesiastes and the word hevel. Hevel, which means vapor. I've heard, uh, I heard actually one commentator called it absurd. You tra- in today's modern language, it's best to translate it absurd, he says, because that sort of captures what the author is feeling. That after looking at everything and looking at life and experiencing all of these things, you just realize that everything is transitory and you can't actually hold on to it. And it's actually kind of meaningless. But he's not saying there isn't any meaning. And the word vanity for us gets translated more like pride or ambition. So that doesn't really work. One of our, one of our folks in our, uh, in our study meeting on Tuesday this week said he's essentially saying, I've looked at everything, I've seen everything, and I got to tell you, Life is bananas. And I kind of like that translation, right? In fact, that's the title of my message this morning. That the words of Kohelet, the king in the line of David, this wise leader, is saying, you know what? I've looked at everything. I've evaluated it all. And I got to tell you, life is hevel. Life is bananas. Life is absurd. It's futility. It's meaningless, right? It's vanity. He says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And then in verse 3, 
he continues on. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you have a pen or a pencil this morning, you got one of those journals, I would invite you to circle or underline the word gain in verse 3 and circle or underline the word toil. These are major themes that will be present throughout our entire study of the book of Ecclesiastes. He says again and again, like we do all this work and we do all of these things. And yet what is the profit for us? What is the advantage that is gained? What, what do we get out of it? That's the question he's asking. And he's saying, I've looked at it all and I've tried it all. And I got to tell you, there is no gain. You work and work and work and work. And at the end, you got nothing to show for it. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's similar, similar to what Jesus says in Mark eight thirty six. In Mark 8, 36, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What have you really gained in that case? We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in verse 19 of Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's Jesus saying? You can put your investment in things that are vaporous, things that are like breath, that are like smoke, that are like mist, hevel, or you can invest in things that actually last. We went through a three-week series right before Easter where we talked about the values of the kingdom of God, his glory and our love for one another and our service in his image, right? But here in Ecclesiastes chapter one, he says everything is hevel, everything is breath. It's all intangible, it's smoke, it's absurdity, He says, what does a man gain for all the toil in which he toils under the sun? Verse 4, he says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It's an interesting juxtaposition. A lot of times we use the sort of common language to say like, ah, things come and they go, right? Things come and go. Ah, the, you know, the Dodger season is going to kind of come and go. You know, you never know how they're going to do or whatever. Popular trends, they come and go. That isn't the language that he uses here. Because his emphasis is not on the the sort of transitional nature of things, but rather that all things die. If you have a pen or a pencil, I would invite you to circle or underline the word goes there in that verse. In this word, verse 4, underline or circle the word goes. Because what he's emphasizing is, it's only a matter of time before everybody goes, right? Before everybody dies. One of the major themes of the book of Ecclesiastes, we will see it on every page, is the inevitability of death. That human beings will die. That there is, a, there is a, a day coming for all of us in which this generation will go and a new generation will come. And the earth will just keep on going as if none of that happened, right? As if none of that happened. You see what the writer's doing. He's painting this picture of futility. I remember when I was a sophomore in high school, I, was, uh, I had this girlfriend named Sarah. We didn't go on dates because I wasn't allowed to date, but we called each other boyfriend and girlfriend. I don't really know what we meant by that, but... As a sophomore in high school, uh, she broke up with me. Sarah broke up with me, and I was heartbroken, as you might imagine. And I'm sure, like, for you guys, you're probably like, why would she do that, right? It doesn't make any sense. But, uh, and I was, honestly, I was wondering the same thing. But I remember as a sophomore, my little heart was so broken, and so I started wearing black all the time. Like, I'd wear black. And then I started writing these, like, really sort of morbid and sad poems, right? I wrote, it's like my more poetry in that period of time than ever in my life. I looked for some of those poems this week, and you'll be happy to know I couldn't find any. But you, you wouldn't want to hear them, right? In some ways, as I'm writing these, you know, 
gloomy poems about the futility of my existence as a sophomore, I'm capturing something of the spirit of the writer of Ecclesiastes. Except that he wasn't a sophomore in high school, and he didn't just have his you know, girlfriend break up with him. He had experienced all that life offers. And he's going, the reality is there is no gain for your labor or your toil. And the reality is the generation that you're in is going to go, and a new generation is going to come, and the earth's just going to keep on ticking. Now, he gives us three examples out of the natural world. I want to remind you before we look at them in verses 5 through 7. These three examples are not meant to be a scientific fact, right? So we don't treat treat wisdom literature in the Old Testament like a science book. That's a mistake. The writer was not giving us scientific fact. And in fact, he's going to say something in verse 5 about the sun that is not scientifically true. Don't let that blow your mind. This isn't meant to be a science text. It's poetic language that's painting a picture of our experience in both its simplicity and complexity. So don't get derailed here. Here's what he says. As a, as a, as a picture of the cyclical nature of the world that, that just keeps trucking. He says in verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He says, look at the world around us, right? And by the way, you'll hear the phrase, another phrase that's common in this text is the phrase under the sun. We're going to see that throughout Ecclesiastes. When he talks about under the sun, some people have kind of tried to pull the rug out from underneath his criticism by saying, oh, well, he just doesn't have an eternal perspective, right? When he says under the sun, he's just talking about the temporal world. And therefore, if he would just lift up his eyes to the fact that we're all going to get to go to heaven someday, then all of the pain and the suffering that he experiences and sees would be negated. That isn't what he means by under the sun. When he says under the sun, he doesn't mean like life right now is lame. What he means is I've looked at everything that can be viewed in human experience and it doesn't add up. Life is bananas. So don't pull the rug out from underneath the the sentiment of what he feels, right? He says... The sun, just, there's all this activity. The wind, it's moving and blowing all around. The sea, precipitation, the water table, right? It rains and falls and gets in a stream and goes in the ocean. And then it gets evaporated and it just keeps going again and again. What's he saying? Well, there's all this activity. There's all this movement. There's all this hustle and bustle, right? In the natural world. And at the end of the day, it's all just back where it started, right? The solar system is moving the way it does. And at the end of the day, it's all just back where it started. The water table is what it is. He's saying, this is like my life. This is what I've experienced. There's all this activity and all this movement. And at the end of the day, it's just a zero-sum game. There is no gain. There is no advantage. Lots of work and movement and effort. Absolutely nothing changes. Now, this is interesting because it's a contrast with Orthodox Jewish perspective of the natural world, right? The Orthodox Jewish perspective. So again, if we're thinking about the timeline in which this was written, the Orthodox Jewish person believed, number one, that God orchestrated everything in nature, that he tightly controlled all of that. So for him to say the sun and the wind and the sea is doing its thing and there's no purpose to it would would fly in the face of Orthodox Jewish perspective because they would go like, no, no, no. God is the puppet master of all that. He's making it all work. So it has purpose. Not only that, they believed that the purpose of creation was to glorify God. Psalm 19, you may be familiar with this, in verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So here when he says, well, the sun and its circuit, and the wind blowing and returning, and the sea, you know, gathering all the streams, and nothing is ever gained, the Orthodox Jewish perspective at the time would have been like, that ain't true. It's glorifying God that whole time, and that's something. 
But what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying is, is it? Is that something? I don't know. I've looked at it and I'm not sure it is, he says, right? I'm watching this cyclical nature of creation and I'm seeing my own life reflected in it and I'm not sure that anything is gained, which he's already said. He goes on to give us examples out of his own experience, right? And our experience as well. These are uh, things that happen in our own life. He says this in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Does this capture a little bit of what you've experienced in your life? The insatiable nature of human beings? You know that feeling when you go, if I could just go on this vacation, my life would be so much better. Or if I could just eat a steak that was a little more expensive than the steak I had last night, my life would be so much better. If I drove just a little bit better car, and then what happens? You go on the vacation, and you go, yeah, it didn't really scratch the itch. I think I need to go on this other vacation, right? You get the car you're dreaming of, and you drive it, and you think, it still has a little rattle like the old car did. I'm not sure, you know? What it says is that there's no end to all of our talking, and yet it just adds up to weariness. There's no satisfying our eyes or our ears. No matter what we see, no matter what we hear, no matter what we taste, we're always hungry for more. We never get to the end. It doesn't matter how much money or how much power or how much pleasure. And this is from the super Solomon character who's saying, like, I've been there and tried it, and none of it scratches the itch. You're still going to be itchy at the end, right? Nothing will satisfy He says, everything is old. He's like, we're hungry for innovation. You ever feel that? You feel like, I just got to try the new thing. Maybe you're an early adopter and you like to get on new tech or whatever. And then you get that new piece of technology or you get on that new app or you try out the new thing and you go, oh, this is basically just the old thing in a new skin, right? I don't know if you guys have noticed, but like, I hate to be the ones to tell you this if you haven't noticed, but have you realized that the mullet is coming back? I don't think there's anything we can do about it. I think the ship has sailed, and I've, I've given it a lot of thought. I feel like I, I'll do what I can, but I just think that's probably where we're headed, y'all. We're all going to have mullets pretty soon. I don't even know how to do that. But you get it, like with fashion and with everything, it, right? It all cycles back around. Don't throw away your old tennis shoes. Don't throw away your old suit jackets. Don't throw away your bell bottoms, because they're just coming back around. He says, this is the world. We think we found something new and then we realize, no, it's just the same thing wrapped up in a different package. He says, it has been already in the ages before us. And then he finishes this summary of the book in verse 11. This is, by the way, the narrator's voice summarizing what Kohelet will say in the rest. But in verse 11, he says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after Man, this is a body blow for the Hebrew people, right? Again, for an Orthodox Jewish person who's reading this, like this is, this is crushing because so much of their culture was built on remembrance. Remembrance is such a big deal for them, right? God says, remember that I took you out of Israel or that I took you out of Egypt and I led you into a land of promise. Remembrance is everything. We got to remember. Remember who we were. Remember who we are. Remember who God is. And if we live a righteous life, we will be remembered, right? The scriptures have promised the Hebrew people that if they live a righteous life, their name will be revered. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 7 says, The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. And the writer of Ecclesiastes has said, I've kind of weighed that idea of remembrance, and i got to tell you, a couple generations and nobody's going to know you lived. 
all the things that preoccupy your mind, the things that feel so stressful, the things that have you overwhelmed right now, your great grandkids might not even know your name, much less the fact, the stuff that you were struggling with in the midst of your life. It seems so big to you right now, but a couple generations and that stuff's gone. You won't be remembered, he says. The things that seem so important to you, your power and your money and your wealth or your struggles or whatever, all those things, they're hevel, they're smoke, they're futility, they're absurdity. Life is bananas, right? It's nothing. He says, it will not be remembered. This is a a summary, right? A summary of the... The fact that there isn't gain to toil, a summary of the idea that death comes to all of us, a summary of the cyclical nature of the world, including our life, that the insatiable nature of our own people, like our own persons, that we never are satisfied, and the fact that not only will we die, but we won't be remembered. That's how the author narrates and sort of gives us a summary of what Kohelet's going to be saying for the next few weeks. Aren't you excited about that, right? (laughs) But it's interesting, that isn't the last word that the author gives us. At the end of the book, At the end of the book, the author comes back. So Kohelet's going to expand on all this, and we're going to dig through it over the coming weeks. But I want to give you a glimpse. We're going to study Ecclesiastes 12 at the end of the series as well. But for our purpose this morning, and kind of for our purpose every week, I think it's important for you to hear what, what the author says at the end. So flip with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes 12. In Ecclesiastes 12, starting in verse 8, the narrator's voice comes back. So Kohelet has shared all of his observations, which we're going to study in the coming weeks. And then at the end, the narrator comes back and here's what he says. He repeats the motto again. Hevel of hevels. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. I want you to note that the author comes back after Kohelet has laid all this stuff out. There is no gain for all of our labor. Death will come to all of us. We will not be remembered. Everything is futility. It's all hevel, right? I want you to note that the author doesn't come back at the end and go... Now, let me tell you, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That guy's nuts. I want to tell you, life is meaningful. So ignore everything you've just read. Like he doesn't, he doesn't let us out of the tension. He doesn't refute what Kohelet has said. He doesn't argue against it. In fact, he praises Kohelet. Here's what he says. He says, Kohelet, the teacher, the preacher, whatever you want to call him, that person has, has worked to gather all kinds of wisdom. And some of it was very pleasurable. We'll see that in the coming weeks. There are going to be times in our study in Ecclesiastes where the preacher will say a thing that will warm your heart. And you'll go, yes, that's true. He says some of what he's gathered is pleasurable and a joy to read. But he says all of it is truth. All of it is truth. Well, what do you do with that? The author has now just endorsed what Kohelet has said. In saying it's futility, and saying that it's hevel. He then goes on to say, some of what he said, some of it was pleasurable, all of it was truth. He says, some of it was like a nail driven at the end of a whip to drive a sheep. Some of it hurt. Some of it was painful. Some of us pushed our buttons and poked us in places we didn't want to be poked, right? But he says it all comes from one shepherd. Now, interestingly, I think what we see in, in Hebrew, or excuse me, in uh, Ecclesiastes 12 is, is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus, when he talks about all of this, both the painful and the pleasurable in the wisdom of Kohelet coming from one shepherd, when the word one shepherd or the phrase one shepherd is used in the Bible, it's always in reference to God. He's not talking about Kohelet there. 
So I think what we've got is a foreshadowing of Christ, who has not yet answered Kohelet's questions, but will come and answer some of them. And so the writer here at the end, in essence, he does not refute what Kohelet has said. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't dismiss him. Here's what he says. Look at the last two verses, verse 13 and 14. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. At the end of the day, the author, the narrator voice in this book says, I hear you, right? He says to Kohelet, I've heard what you have to say. And he doesn't disagree. So, so this is basically the way it goes. It's like Kohelet saying, everything is hevel. It's all smoke. It's all futility. It's all absurdity. Life is bananas, right? And the author says, yep. And you should still follow God. Yep. Sometimes it's hard to understand. Sometimes you do all the right things and you don't get the payoff. Sometimes you labor and toil and there is no reward for you. Still follow God, the writer says. What does he say? He says, fear God, obey his commandments, and trust in his judgment. Fear, obedience, and trust. Interestingly, this is an encapsulation of the whole Hebrew mindset with regard to like the wisdom of God and the law of God and the prophets of God, right? To pay attention to them. The writer here doesn't argue with Kohelet. If you're here in the room and you felt some of the futility of life, if you have these deep questions, if you have this pain, the writer of Ecclesiastes is looking at you and saying, yeah, yeah, it's not wrong to feel what you're feeling. What you're feeling has merit. But you should still follow God. Now, interestingly, in following God and, and in fearing him, being obedient and trusting his judgments, one of the ways in the future, after this book was written, that God's judgment becomes clear is in the person of Christ, right? The person of Christ is God's judgment upon what's good and evil. So what was coming, there's again a foreshadowing of the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrated last week. What I want you to see then is that Jesus also walks with us in the sentiment of Ecclesiastes. He felt some of this, right? The, the sense of betrayal by God. Is that not what Jesus felt when he was on the cross? I'll refer you again to Matthew twenty-seven forty-five. From the sixth hour, there was darkness. This is during the crucifixion. Darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt like there was no payoff for your toil? Have you ever felt like death was going to come and what was it all worth? Have you ever felt like you're just in this treadmill or this hamster wheel of life and nothing ever comes out of it? Guess what? Jesus experienced life. There is a moment where Jesus also experiences that sense of where is God? Jesus understands it. It tells us in Galatians that Jesus became a curse for us who are under the curse that we would be set free from it. He experiences the hevel of this life. He understands the hevel of what it means to be a human. Jesus does. But Jesus provides answers. It will do us well every week as we study Ecclesiastes to come back to 13 and 14 of chapter 12 to remind ourselves that Jesus had not answered these questions when it was written, but he did answer some of them. One of the major questions that the writer of Ecclesiastes has is, what about death? Doesn't that sort of neutralize any good that could come out of anything? And Jesus goes, death? I'm going to undo that. I'm going to give life where only death existed before Death exists. It's a reality, but the reality is that Jesus redeems it. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus experienced this, and he answers some of these questions. The introduction of faith in Christ at this point does not cancel hevel. 
So listen to what I'm saying. The writer, the author, when he says, trust God and fear God and obey him, he's not canceling out the feeling of heaven. He's not saying that's, uh, that's irrational or it has no place. He's saying, feel what you feel and trust God. The introduction of trust in God is not the eradication of Hevel. It's not the cancellation of that feeling of hopelessness or meaningless. But what it does is it adds an extra dimension. It reframes the Hevel we experience. It reframes it in light of the fact that Jesus is restoring all things. That he is the answer to death. That is the answer to some of the meaninglessness we experience. Romans chapter 8 verse 18 says... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul writes in Romans that Jesus answers... The futility that we feel. I love the fact that Jesus himself in John, and I'll finish here. Jesus himself in John says this in verse 37 of chapter 7. He says, on the last day of the feast, of the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus understood what it was to be thirsty, and he understood that you and I would be thirsty. That there would be times where we just couldn't see enough to satisfy our aching souls, or hear enough to satisfy our aching souls. That no amount of words or books could be written that would ever satisfy the hevel within us. That sense of life being mist and vapor. Jesus says, you hungry? I can feed you. You thirsty? I can give you a drink. Jesus answers the questions that the writer to Ecclesiastes has, but, but they don't become canceled or eradicated. What I want you to hear this morning is that if you're sitting here this morning and you feel a sense of hevel, if you feel like you don't understand the point of all this, or you see the pain and suffering, you have questions about who God is and, and how he, he works in this world, you don't have to be embarrassed to ask those. There are questions literally exactly like that in this book. But unlike the writer of Ecclesiastes, the Koaleth, he, he didn't have the opportunity to know Jesus. He could look ahead and hope for a Jesus. But what Jesus does is he introduces the possibility for us to experience Hevel with hope. Hope in the redeeming work of Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word, even its complexity. I thank you for the honesty of the writer of Ecclesiastes, who can, who can say with many of us, I don't get it. This seems bananas to us. This seems absurd. We understand the feeling and we all go through seasons of time where we recognize that, own, that, that futility in our own lives. And yet, God, we know that we can trust you and that we should obey you and that we should fear you. That even in the midst of our doubts and questions, the things we don't understand and the things that bring us grief and pain, you can be trusted and you can be followed and obeyed. Most notably in our submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection that gives this creation subjected to futility hope that all things will be made new, that all things can be made new, and that there is a, an answer to the question of death. And the answer is Jesus himself, the light and life of men. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory.